0: Matthew chapter 22, we're going to pick that up again from uh, verse 34, and it's particularly verses 34 to 40 that we're thinking about uh, today. So, page 991 now of the Pew Bibles, Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Amen. Questions. People ask questions for all sorts of reasons, don't they? Most obviously, we ask questions to get an answer. That's what we would expect. But it's not the only purpose of questions. Sometimes questions are used to distract. I, I do remember one lecture that I, I had in the past, and all that was needed was one carefully planned question about 10 minutes into the lecture, and that was it. Uh, he would go off on a tangent. He would tell story after story and there was no work done for the rest of the class. We took advantage of that a lot in that class. Sometimes questions are, are, are used to try and make the questioner look really intelligent or superior, sometimes by making the person who's being asked try to be made look stupid. Uh, Martin Luther was often plagued with questions and from one individual, uh, he was asked a lot of questions that were, were trying to make him look stupid and at one point, This man said to him, Luther, what was God doing before he made the world? And Luther snapped and turned around and said, he was making hell for people like you who ask questions like that. And sometimes then questions are used to try and trap people, to lead a person into saying something that they didn't intend to say or to admit something that they didn't want to admit. We sometimes see that perhaps in the media. And in the days before his crucifixion, Jesus was asked lots of questions, and many of them, as we've just seen, were questions that were designed to trap him. In this chapter that we're looking at today, Matthew 22, it takes place on the Tuesday of Holy Week. Matthew tells us about a whole series of questions that Jesus was asked by various groups of religious leaders and their disciples, and they're all designed to trap Jesus. So he's asked, for example, about paying taxes. It would have been easy for Jesus to say something there that would have either made him look like a troublemaker to the Romans and got him into trouble, or or like a collaborator with the Romans and, and lost him favor with the people. Jesus' brilliant answer leaves the religious leaders speechless, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God's that which is God's. It's the same whenever he's asked by the Pharisees about the resurrection. They were the sort of, religious liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection or in large parts of the Bible. And they had this obviously well-rehearsed story about a woman who had uh, married seven uh, husbands sequentially. You really would have figured that by six or seven, uh, some of these guys would have said, you know, this woman's not good for our family here. Uh, There's a problem. Uh, But uh, the question then was, whose wife will she be in the next life? And Jesus puts them entirely in their place by saying, You do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. You you don't understand what the Bible is saying, nor do you have any idea of how powerful God is and how transforming the relationships will be in glory. Eventually, you'll see that he turns the questions on them, begins to to point them to the fact that he is uh, the son of David and also the one who was there as David was speaking about his Lord in front of God. But this morning we want to focus on one of those incidents and it's that one in verses 34 to 40 where Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment. Because we we see in, in all of these stories as Jesus deals with these slippery questions, he not only puts the questioners in their place but he takes the opportunity to teach us something really, really important. And in dealing with this question, We see Jesus telling us what the basic thrust of our lives really are to be, what we might want to say our our meaning and purpose in life is really to be. Now, I imagine if you had the opportunity to ask Jesus to speak on anything, that would be a pretty good topic to have him address, wouldn't it? What is it we're here for? What is the purpose of my life? That's a question that's troubling many people in our world today. I, I looked up a, an article in Wikipedia this week about the meaning of life, and it surveyed some of the ways that great philosophers in the past had tried to ask, answer that question. It also had a section about contemporary views, and, and it was a particularly depressing section. So many of the views were inane. they were self centered. Life is about achieving your potential or achieving happiness. Uh, Some views, to be fair, were about helping others, leaving the world a better place. Some views mentioned some belief in the form of God, but there were just dozens and dozens of options. It just reflects the point that that our world doesn't really know what to do with that question. What is the purpose of life? There are as many views as there are people, But, but Jesus comes along and speaks with authority into that situation. And how we need to hear what he says afresh in this world where there's so much confusion. Well, the question comes in the form of a question about the law of God. The Pharisees got together. We read in verse 34. You can just imagine the meeting. This man is going too far, they must have said. He's got to be stopped. What are we going to do? Well, how about we embroil him in one of the big theological disputes of the day? At least we will divide his supporters. And uh, you see, it was commonly recognized that of the various laws that God had given in the Old Testament, their Bible as it were, there, there were about uh, 600 of them or so. It was recognized that some were more important than others. They, they talked about the weightier matters of the laws, so some had priority over others. Uh, and yet the question was, well, which were most important? And there was lots of debate over that, so off one of them went to ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, verse 36? And Jesus, as we know, wastes no time in answering, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, now both of those two uh, commandments, those, those two uh, uh, summaries are quotes from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and from Leviticus 19, they were both quoted from time to time by various rabbis in their teaching, but it is Jesus who uniquely brings them together and uses them to sum up the overall thrust of God's commands for us. So loving God sums up the first four Godward commands. Loving your neighbor sums up the six manward commands of, of the Ten Commandments. And it is Jesus' unique contribution, in a sense, in this whole debate, to say, well, here is the thrust of what God says to us. Here is what God tells us we are to do and to be like as people. Now, let's think of the implications, then, of what Jesus says. He he is saying, basically, that we have some duties in life. There's not a word that we easily use today, but we, we have. We've we've duties, and we've duties both to, to God and to our neighbor. We've duties to God, first of all. Jesus had set this up, as we were saying earlier, uh, when he asked the question about the taxes, when he was asked the question about the taxes. He, he says that we are really God's image bearers. The stamp of his image is upon us. You render unto God that which is God's. He owns us. We owe Him. We owe Him, therefore, our obedience and our love. And here He underlines that. And our duty is to love Him with all that we have and all that we are. That's really what this is saying. All of our being, every part of us, and all of every part of us. Sometimes I'll end up, great privilege, sometimes I'll end up talking a Things through with with somebody who's thinking about becoming a Christian. It's something I've I've had that opportunity to do on, on many occasions down through the years, and and sometimes you can see the sort of struggles that go on in our heads that that have maybe gone on in the heads of many of us in the past, as as they try to to think about this. And one of the things that that is is quite common is that someone thinks a little like this. They think, right, okay, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm committed to this and this and this, but I've got this little bit of spare space in my life. God can fit in there. But, but this rather blows that sort of thinking apart, doesn't it? Because it's saying here, we've got to love God with, with all that we have, all that we are. It's, it's not that he occupies the leftovers of an otherwise busy life. This is saying that that God's got to fill everything and he's got to come first in everything. It's also saying, of course, that the basis of our relationship with God is is a love relationship. It's it's interesting that we're commanded to love. We we don't think of love in that sort of way. Can you imagine a, a father saying to his son, now I want you to go and find that girl over there and you've got to love her, or, or a, a girl uh, doing that the other way around. you know It, it seems that, that love is a, an involuntary thing that we can't help. I fell helplessly in love is what people say. But that doesn't fit here because here love is commandment I, 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 is, is commanded, and, and it's not just a, a dry ascent to some rules. It's, it's, it's actually a love, it's just saying it's not just saying "I believe this now, it's saying... I'm going to love this God that I've come to know. It's an invitation to be in a relationship with Him. And yet at the same time, it's not just a feeling because it shows itself in very concrete ways. Jesus implies that, doesn't He, whenever He uses this to sum up the law and the prophets because the summing up of the first four commandments are all about how we obey God. So we put Him first. We worship Him in His terms. We honor His name and His day and so on. So so this is not a a God that we can say, I I love you, but don't tell me what to do. Jesus later on talks about loving God by obeying His commands. It's what we do. So this is part of what's been behind some of the decisions that the General Assembly took uh, three or four weeks ago that have had such repercussions in the, in the papers and online. The, the, the question was, what is a, a credible profession? So if a couple come to, uh, to join or if an uh, individual comes to join the church as a member or a couple come to have a baby baptized, what is a, a credible profession? How is that to be measured? It's not just enough within our understanding, our tradition, to say, I believe in God or even I, I love God. That, that's not what a credible profession means. The Bible is clear that, that, that if we're saying that, that there will be an outworking in a basic orientation of a person's life towards God's revealed will. And it's the responsibilities then of the elders within the church to say, yes, what we what we know of this person, that, that their life matches their profession. Oh, no, not 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 perfectly, because none of our lives do. But but in its overall direction, here is a life that says, I, I'm I'm living for God as much as I know how to do. Now, now I hope that we 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 see this. Many of us perhaps are, are asking questions at times, what's life all about? Some of us perhaps are wondering about Christianity and where it fits in our lives. And and, and this is saying, you see, that, that Jesus is the, the key to life. In the first and, and greatest commandment, He is saying the basic Duty that that all of us have is to to love God with all that we have and all that we are. Augustine said, uh, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find our rest in thee. Uh, And if you're really sort of battling with with Christianity, that's that's the basic sort of claim that there is, as as Augustine said, a a God-shaped hole within our lives. And if we're Christians, then let this call us back to, to something that should be really basic for us, and that is that our basic purpose is to, to love the Lord. I wonder, is that something that we're we're growing in? Do, <clears throat> do we know Him better now than we did last summer? What are we going to, to read over the next few weeks if we're having some time off? The latest blockbuster? Are we going to perhaps include in our holiday readings something to get to know God better? Talk to me and I'll give you some recommendations. But, but this command is not alone. We have a duty to God, but we also have a double duty. We have a duty to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, let's get something out of the way here. Some people have been really taken with this in, in the self-esteem movement, and they've used it to say, Well, here's Jesus telling us we've got to love ourselves. Now, that's not what he's doing. He's assuming that we do love ourselves. We're already very quick to think of ourselves, aren't we? Even if we're not happy about some aspect of ourselves, we want to change something, we still think of ourselves very, very quickly in the sense that we favor ourselves and we put ourselves first. It's just what we do. It's part of our orientation as sinful human beings. And, and what Jesus is saying then is that we have a duty to our fellow man to love them in the same way, to, to, to be swift to think of them. Jesus made that clear in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that, that our neighbor is anyone that is in, is in need, whose need we can meet. And again, loving them is not an emotional experience. It's not a particular feeling. It's an action. It's about binding up the wounds and, and, and making sure that they're cared for. How can we do them good? One person I said uh, that we, I read this week, it said, this is really not hard to work out. We just imagine ourselves in that situation. And we think, what would I need someone to do for me if, if I was them? And then we do it if we can it's not terribly hard, just takes a little bit of thought. Somebody is bereaved, uh, what would I need someone to do for me if I was in that situation? Somebody's lonely, what, what would I need someone to do if I was lonely? Could I do that for them? Now, of course, this is one of our, our great feelings as a church. We, we know that. We're, we've been quick to, to think about, uh, what Jesus says perhaps about loving God, we've forgotten sometimes to love our neighbor well. But these things go together. They should. It's one of the reasons that the early church grew so explosively in the first couple of centuries. There was this incredible love of neighbor in practical ways that impacted the ancient world that people could not avoid. Let's say something else here, though it's really important in today's culture. And that means that that loving our neighbors also means sharing good news with them. If we really believe what the Bible says about the necessity of meeting Jesus here and now as our Savior before we meet him then as our judge, then we've got to introduce our neighbors to him, haven't we? That's to love them. And that also means the church gently saying to the world, where we are running from God and from His will. It's hard today. Take such courage. Some of you are in workplaces and in circles where that's tremendously difficult. I was very challenged uh, last week by Rigo Tice, what he said a couple of weeks ago when he, when he left uh, Justin Welby's evangelism team in the Church of England because the, the bishop who was uh, leading that was was affirming of same-sex marriage. Rico said this, I think it's a great wickedness to tell people who are on the road to destruction that they're not. To tell them they're safe when it comes to God's wrath when they're not. The road to destruction in Britain, Rico said, is defined by two things, tolerance and permissiveness. You can do what you please and you can think what you please. If we have church leaders who are putting people on that road to destruction, then it's a salvation issue what would I need someone to do for me if I was in that situation? I would need them to love me and care for me, but also to tell me the truth about my need for a Savior's love. So so here then, you see, is what, what life is for. It's for loving God and our neighbor. This is our duty. This is what we were made for. Now, that's what the, the law says in a sense. That's the message of, of the Old Testament. Jesus was, was uh, saying that, but it's, it's, it's not the overall message of the gospel because the fact that Jesus was standing there shows us that it's not just enough for people to know this. You remember that in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus spells out what love for neighbor looks like as he talks about the Good Samaritan. He He tells this religious leader the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a love that puts oneself out for other people, even if they're on the other side of whatever particular divide we might find ourselves in. And Jesus says to him at the end of that parable, Now, you go and do likewise. You go and live like that. Now, what's the problem? The problem was that religious leader, there was no way he was going to live like that. He could not be that good. He could not be like that Good Samaritan. And Jesus knew that. There was a man, you see, who was coming to Jesus, trusting in his own ideas of what it meant to be good. That was where he thought his hope lay. But Jesus was trying to break him open with the demands of the law so that he might see his needs of a Savior. I'm sure some of you watched the most recent royal wedding. Bishop Michael Curry's sermon made a big impact on many people. It was not the sort of normal sermon that you heard at a royal wedding or at any wedding for that matter. And you remember what he said, it was all about the power of love. Love was the hope of the world. Now, I don't know if you picked it up, but there was lots of debate about what he said. And actually, I think there were some big problems with what he said. Because basically, what he was moving towards was saying, that the hope of the world is for you to go out there and love, love selflessly, sacrificially, the way Jesus did. Go and do likewise. The problem was, you see, it was really law. It was saying, this is what you've got to do. That's where the hope is. But I don't know about you, but I don't think we can do that. If our hope is, is built on the fact that, that we've got to love God with all of our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves, then I don't know about you, but I don't have much confidence in my future. I would be lost. I think you would be too. Because that's not the gospel. That's a truncated gospel. The, the, the gospel, however, the real gospel brings hope because, you see, the one who was saying this was, was Jesus. He's the one in all of history who loved God with his heart and soul and mind. He loved his father perfectly, and he's the one who loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. He perfectly served people all of the time. And you see, when we come to know him, when we trust him, some amazing things happen. On the one hand, the fact that we've not loved and lived like this is dealt with. Our sins are paid for. Our failings to love God and our neighbor are are dealt with. Not only that, but Jesus' perfect record is placed on our uh, in our account. And so if you're a Christian today, Jesus, uh, God treats you as if you have loved him with all of your heart and soul and mind and loved your neighbor perfectly. How marvelous that is. The old hymn puts it this way. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. Why would we trust in our own ability to do that, which we can't do, if we have Jesus' record there for us to trust Him? But then that's not all. He comes and dwells in us by His Spirit and helps us then to love God and to love our neighbor. So, So, if you see this little diagram, in a sense, Michael Curry in his sermon said, here's what you have to do. Here's the law. Love the world. Now, go and do it. There's really no hope in that, is there? Because we can't. But the message of the Bible is this here's the law. This is what you've got to do, but we can't do it. But Jesus has done it for us. So trust Him, rest in Him, and now go and do it. That's good news. Jesus was making clear to these people just how serious the demands of the law are. He's saying, do you want to get right with God by yourself? Love God perfectly with your whole heart. Love your neighbor perfectly as you love yourself. See how you get on with that. You've no hope going that way. But now that we've become followers of the Lord Jesus, the one who has lived that way, then he says to us, now in my strength, go and do it. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today that the high demands of the law of God have been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. For if our hope were to rest on loving you perfectly, loving our neighbor perfectly, then we would have no hope at all. We thank you that Jesus did this. We thank you that he did for us what we could not do. We pray that you'll help us to trust him and in his strength to love you and others. We pray in his name, amen.